0: In today's episode, I spoke with Erin Balsa about thought leadership, content strategy, and the rise of freelance marketing. If you don't know Erin, she's a master of using thought leadership and content strategy to grow businesses. She's also the founder of House of Bold, which is a content strategy firm for sales-led B2B SaaS startups. She's uniquely qualified to talk to us about these topics today, so let's dive right into the episode. Ultimately, I wanted to start with thought leadership, as I think that's You know, the really unique thing that you bring to the table in discussing that we haven't really covered on the show so much. So when we're talking through thought leadership for companies, I'm curious to know what are the common objections that you see when you're talking with companies that are like, we want to do thought leadership, but what are the objections that usually stop them from actually putting up a program?
1: the companies that i work with don't have objections to doing thought leadership they actually come to me specifically because they're interested in doing that kind of marketing motion as opposed to a straight seo play the companies that are more used to finding a keyword that their audience is searching for you know outsourcing the writing to someone who maybe never worked a day in the industry who maybe isn't going to hop on the phone and interview, an internal subject matter expert, isn't going to bother to weave in the company's strategic narrative. Companies like that, you know, there is, there's nothing wrong with that if you're selling a, you know, a product that is more inexpensive to a consumer or a a wide kind of general audience. A lot of companies can get away with that and it's really inexpensive to do that kind of marketing. But the companies that I tend to, well, that tend to reach out to me for help It's because they're ready to invest in thought leadership. So they're bought in. They understand the value of a thought leadership program as a complement to their organic educational kind of SEO optimized efforts that are already happening. And now it's time to really scale that engine, reach the right people with thought leadership. That said, among those companies, one of the biggest stumbling blocks that I have run into time and time again is the bit where you have your internal subject matter experts creating content that is designed natively for social. So for example, the CEO or the CTO writing content to post on LinkedIn. That is a stumbling block for so many companies that I work with and talk to. A lot of executives are not bought into that. They're too busy. They're just not interested. And so that is probably the biggest challenge that I run into consistently.
0: So for you personally, in your offering and kind of what you gravitate towards in terms of your approach, what might be different about how you approach thought leadership compared to, you know, other people that might also be coaching or helping companies do the same thing?
1: Great question. First, I actually have a podcast. I started it about a year ago to delve into what is thought leadership because I have seen so many different marketers explain it so differently. A lot of people were saying that thought leadership is sharing your opinions on LinkedIn. For me, that's not thought leadership. That's just sharing opinions. Some people are saying that if you publish well researched educational content over time, you will then be seen as a thought leader by your audience. And that can be true, especially if your audience is not super skeptical, super well educated. It can be more easy to be seen as a thought leader by simply sharing good educational information. For me, thought leadership is the next tier. It is sharing original insights, talking about what's the future of the industry? What is the gap that no one else is seeing or talking about? How can we create new disciplines, new categories? How can we get proprietary original data to stand up and support our storytelling? So it's all of those pieces woven in delivered across channels, so not just on LinkedIn, not just on the blog. You're speaking. You might be writing a book to support your thought leadership. You're getting people throughout the company to evangelize this message. So it's really a lot bigger than just simply publishing LinkedIn posts or educational articles.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I think there are a lot of thought reactors out there. That's like more often what you see on LinkedIn, where they're just reacting to stuff happening. Whereas what you're saying is You have to be able to actually drive thoughts in the industry and almost look forward and see what might be, which is hard to do and why probably there aren't that many people doing a super great job of it. On the more like tactical side of thought leadership, when you're sitting down with companies and talking through quantifying this or setting KPIs, that can be a little more challenging to do for something like this versus like paid acquisition, for example. But I'm curious how you think about that and how you do set goals and KPIs with companies.
1: Another great question. Another big pain point for the most of the companies that I've worked for and with is attribution and attributing, you know, spend and revenue to the thought leadership content, the thought leadership program because it's hard to set up end-to-end attribution. Something that in my last full-time job before I started working for myself, we had a really smart team of ops people and it took them a very long time. I'm talking like a year or more to truly set up a native attribution system. And it was awesome once we got there because we could see the end-to-end journey. We could attribute every dollar. We had multi-touch attribution. It was amazing. And, you know, there's some really great softwares out there like Dream Data is a good one. It can just alleviate the need to have a big team internally to be building and maintaining this attribution model. But at the end of the day, a lot of the companies that I work with, they just don't have either of those things yet. So it really comes down to enabling the sales team. I work specifically with B2B SaaS startups that are sales led. Yeah, they might be hybrid. They might also have a free trial or a freemium product, but at their core, they have a sales team and we need to support and enable that engine for outreach and inbound conversations. So a lot of times, yeah, maybe we're not able to capture every single person who either, not only just came in through a report or you know a webinar, You know, maybe it's bigger than that. For example, if you have somebody who's already been on the site, but they never fill out a form, and then they eventually, you know, sign up for a webinar, then they might check out some content or a course on your website, then they might ghost you and they might disappear. And then, you know, we might have this report and somehow it gets in front of them. Either we retarget them or, you know, just organically get shared on social media and they see it and they say, oh, yeah, I remember this company. They read the report they like it, they interact with more content, and now they request a demo. Now they're ready to talk to sales after all of these different touch points across time. And it's really hard to attribute one piece of content or one content campaign to the fact that they finally were ready to talk to sales. So a lot of times it's keeping an eye on, are we trending in the right direction? Is our you know acquisition cost to acquire a client lower than our marketing spend? Is this trending in the right direction? Are we doing the right things? So sometimes until you can get your hands on the actual end-to-end journey and data, it's just a good idea to just look at trends. How many people shared this report? How many people filled out the form to read it? How many people, you know, ended up coming inbound because of? The report and when i say the report i'm not talking about one single piece of content i think that people are thinking too narrow when they're thinking about a singular solitary piece of content you have to think about all the pieces so what about the you know the paid ad that we promoted the report would that ad have driven the same results if it was just an ad with a picture would the report have driven the same results if we didn't put any paid spend behind distributing it you have to really look at the whole campaign and the whole picture
0: Definitely, There are a lot of people that say they want to invest in thought leadership. They want to become a thought leader, but I think they find it's really hard to actually break through and create that consistent original content that's worth reading. That's actually driving towards some kind of goal. When you come to somebody that's experiencing this mental block with that, how do you approach it? Like what are the bullet points that you give them of do this and this, if you really want to break through and make great content?
1: I don't typically work with just like an individual who's looking to become a thought leader. I work with companies. So I'm thinking more on like a team level, which is why I always believe that every company can have the best success when they really nail a unique point of view, their strategic narrative. I'm working with one of my clients, directly with the CEO and founder, currently on helping them nail down their strategic narrative and point of view so that we can weave that in to their homepage, their about page, their speaking tracks, and I can enable their in-house new content lead and freelance writers to really add a unique, emotional backbone to their educational content. So for me, it all begins with that original point of view. Do you have something interesting and different to say? And not only that, like, where did it come from? So I really encourage the marketing leaders and executives that I work with to take a step back and think, where did I come up with this you know, idea to start this company? What problem was I trying to solve? What about the direction of the company? How has it changed? Why are we shifting in this direction? And just trying to really build that whole story and then coming up with like a nice, you know, whimsical kind of tagline for your story. And then there's different ways that you can inject it all throughout the website and your content and your speaking engagements. And it is a really great, solid approach where it's not just one person who's that thought leader, because God forbid, if it's not the CEO, if you have some, you know, internal brand evangelist who leaves the company, you're really going to be at a loss. So I think it's actually best to have a narrative that all different employees across the company can evangelize and make their own.
0: Definitely. So if a company was coming to you that was totally new to this and had never really done thought leadership or even like content marketing as a whole, zooming out a little bit more, if they were pivoting more toward that, is there, is it more of like a custom thing, given that you've niched down so much into sales led organizations and B2B SaaS, is it is there like a playbook that you follow that just works across companies or do you find that it's highly custom every single time you work with somebody else?
1: I don't use a playbook, but I do use best practices. And I have like a huge kind of swipe file of things that I've personally done in the past with different companies and that I have collected over the years. Whenever I see something really amazing, I put it in my Gold Star content folder and I can add that to my swipe file. So, yeah, it's a definitely a custom thing, but I'm not starting from scratch. I'm always able to reference and pull up and show examples of different narratives, different content campaigns, different approaches to creating reports, thought leadership email sequences. So I think that it's pulling from experience, pulling from best practice with some experimentation, but definitely some customization. It can't just be running the same playbook time and time again.
0: Do you feel like there's a common starting point that you usually go with companies that are especially just pivoting into something new like this? Is there a place where you usually end up starting and it's usually step one?
1: Always tons of interviews. So I like to talk to as many people as possible. I like to listen to sales calls because a lot of times when you're so in the weeds and you're so close to the product, you don't exactly see through the way that somebody with fresh eyes could see. So for example, let's say I start with a new client and they're talking about, you know, this in a certain way. And it's very similar to how everyone else is talking about it. And they know they need to do something different, but they're not quite sure what that is. A lot of times if I go in the product, I get a, you know, demo, I talk to a bunch of people and I just start thinking and I spend a lot of time just thinking and it, I come up with some like unique way to, to speak about the product or some unique angle that we can like lean into. And I'll suggest that and then we'll build from there. And over time, we'll test it. I'm like, you know, I've helped companies come up with a whole new way to speak about their product, you know, and it, it might be right. We might you know, pivot and we might adjust. And it's just a matter of working with clients who are willing and brave enough to test new ideas, be different, be bold. And if they're willing to try new things, we can usually accomplish some cool things together.
0: Kind of a follow-up on that thought. I'm sure you mentioned earlier, like usually they they come to you, so there's not a lot of reticence to invest in thought leadership, but I'm sure that they still want to see some kind of quick wins or immediate impact. How do you tell them or how do you mitigate that? How, where, how do you tell them how they should be thinking about immediate impact versus more of a long-term play?
1: Quick wins are great. And I do always try to get a few quick wins and I'm not going to sit there. I've worked with so many agencies over the years, you know, through clients, through full-time jobs. I worked at an agency for three and a half years. And, you know, some of them will sit and take a full month and a half just on board. And they're not actually doing any work. I, you know, I've seen an agency... One of my clients hired, take three months to make almost nothing. Like, well, what are you doing? You're just like planning and not actually ever doing anything. And I think that starts to build a lot of distrust with your client. So as you're doing your research, it's always great to get some quick wins in. And there are some quick wins that are very impactful that you can run on autopilot once you've been doing this for a while. So for me, I work, again, with a very specific kind of company. Taking it a level further, I work with companies that have a marketing team, but no content team. So one of the quick wins I help with is I help them hire a full-time content lead. And that is a huge win because once you have someone in there to manage the content calendar or to start taking away some of the burden that other marketing employees or leaders have been tasked with, it's a huge relief and they feel that and that's a huge win something as simple as setting up processes to help the marketing team work more effectively cross-functionally. Because let's say they're getting slammed with requests, they have, you know, a spreadsheet for a content calendar, they're super stressed. I'm going to come in, I'm going to put some new processes, help us get onto some project management software. All those little easy things for me that make a huge impact. And it's not actually maybe doing marketing or content, but it's low-hanging fruit that, needs to be addressed.
0: Last kind of question around the content side of things. You've been around this so so much that I'm sure you have a tech stack tool belt of things that you heavily rely on. I'm just curious what some of your favorite tools are that absolutely crush for you without fail and you reliably come back to them all the time.
1: I can't believe I'm saying this because I'm a very visual, creative, artistic person. And when I first was told, maybe like five years ago, to use Asana at my company, I was very hesitant because I didn't like the look of it. I'm like, oh, this is so boring. Wouldn't you know, I've come to be so reliant on Asana. I start my day with Asana. I use it with a lot of different companies that I work with. I just love it. So I'd say I'm very reliant on Asana. Slack, of course, like many of us that are in the B2B SaaS space, we communicate all day long with our different clients in Slack. And then for my business, you know, I use, you know, Calendly, like I'm very dependent on that. I think it just makes a nice experience. I use Riverside for recording my podcast, you know, just the basic kind of tools that you would need as a business owner or freelancer. I use probably a lot of the same tools that the people that are listening to this also use.
0: Definitely. I want to pick your brain really quick about freelance a little bit, and then we'll, we'll end things after this. So. Okay. Based on your experience, so you're full-time building this now, I'm sure you've done freelance on the side for a while and you know your fair share about what it's like to consult and do freelancing. Why do you think now more than ever, top marketers are opting more to start freelancing or building their own consulting business on the side as opposed to working in-house?
1: Great question. I can answer that for myself and then I can answer it for what I've been seeing lately. So... Really quick, without going too into the weeds, back about 11 years ago, I met my husband on an airplane. He was from Lisbon, Portugal. I was living in Providence, Rhode Island. And I ended up quitting my job as a magazine editor so that I could go live in Lisbon with him. And that was my first foray into freelancing. And I did not know what the hell I was doing. I didn't have a lot of deep experience. I had a small network. And it was, you know, it was a great time in my life. And luckily, I had rental income coming in from property that I owned, so I wasn't reliant on my freelancing income. And thank God, because I did not make a lot of money. It was definitely more of a hobby than a business. Fast forward, you know, 11 years later, I freelanced on and off throughout the years on top of my full-time job. But I always worked full-time as soon as I got back to the States and could because I wanted to upskill. I wanted to build my network. And that really made all the difference. So at the time that I left to start my business about a year and a half ago, I was a marketing director at a B2B software company and, you know, they were really great. I gave them a heads up, a long heads up that I was going to leave in January of 2022 to start my business and they supported that fully. So I really built my business on the side so that by the time I left, I knew I was going to make more than I was making as a marketing director and I almost doubled my income. In year one which was pretty great so for me that was the ultimate motivator i felt like i had been working hard to build you know a brand a name for myself my friends my connections and i knew that if i leaned into the business i could earn more and the unlimited income potential was really big for me of course flexibility everybody wants that but at the end of the day when you work in b2b SaaS, those companies tend to be pretty flexible so it wasn't that i had no flexibility I already worked from home. I could already, you know, do laundry in the middle of the day. I could go chaperone my kids' field trips. It was less about that and more about the income potential. Definitely. As for what I see, people are getting laid off left and right. And I've had some friends that are actually really good marketers get laid off two or three times over their lifetime. And they've had it. They're just like, screw this. I need to depend on myself. And that's like what I'm seeing happen more and more.
0: Yeah, totally. It's a different landscape. Last question here, rapid fire, and then we'll stop. What are some qualities that you think make a freelance marketer great at what they do?
1: Another great question. You know, I've worked with a lot of freelance marketers and I think that, oh God, it's such a low bar these days, honestly, just to be good because there's so many people who are so disappointing. I would say Under promise and over deliver. That's big. I have a lot of people that over promise and under deliver. That's like a common thing that I see all the time. Be driven, be collaborative, be willing to actually partner with the company. Don't be rigid. There's a lot of agencies and freelancers who are so rigid, they're inflexible. Perfect example. I was working with a client who had an SEO agency who refused to hop on the phone and interview their internal subject matter experts. And I work with companies that sell very complex technology and it's not something you can just like Google or like wing it. You really truly either have to be an expert or you have to be on the phone with the client's experts. And this company, this agency just refused. So they're so rigid and they would rather rewrite the same article 10 times than just hop on a one or two hour call. So I think flexible, being really a teammate, putting your clients' outcomes before your own, having that servant kind of mindset is important, and then just doing good work. There's a lot of people who just aren't really that great, and they're just winging it. So if you're not blowing it out of the water, if you're not getting like amazing feedback from your clients all the time, maybe invest in some education, some upskilling, maybe even if you can go back to full-time work like I did. I felt like I just wasn't quite where I wanted to be. So I went back to full-time work so that I could get the skills I needed.